If you've got a Bible, turn with me to 1 John chapter 5. We're going to land the plane on our Evidence and Assurance series this morning. It's only taken us about seven months. And so we started back in the fall and now we're finishing in March with a few breaks in there for Advent and another series at the first of the year. Uh, but we are going to land the plane this morning in 1 John chapter 5. Our text today is 1 John chapter 5 verses 13 through 21. And so I invite you to follow along as we read it together. In this text, John begins in verse 13 saying, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now over the last several months as we've worked our way through this book, we've said that John's aim is to bring us evidence of our salvation as it's worked itself out in our lives through our beliefs, through our behavior, and through our benevolence, through the way that we love, through the way that we live, and through what we believe, what we profess to believe as a Christian. All, he gives us all this evidence. He says, by this you may know, by this you may know, by this you may know, by this you may know. Over and over and over again throughout the book, he gives us all this evidence to lead us to a place of assurance. An assurance of our salvation. Right? But John, and John gives us all this information, he gives us all this knowledge, but he intends it to produce something in our life. He intends it to produce some vigilance. Now listen, I don't know about you, but there's oftentimes in my life that knowledge brings about deeper levels, deeper levels of knowledge bring about deeper levels of vigilance in my life. For instance, several years ago, I was doing a little spring cleanup in my backyard here at at my house uh, just down the road, and I was in the backyard, I was raking up all the thatch out of the backyard. You know what thatch is? It's all that dead grass that kind of settles down there on the bottom, and it keeps the fertilizer from getting down to the soil to seep into the roots so it gets all lush and green and builds up, and so I was raking up all that thatch there in the backyard. And it was a nice sunny spring day, and I was just hanging out, right, had, had a podcast going in my headphones, and I'm listening to, I don't remember who I was listening to preach, but somebody was preaching a lot better than I do, and so I was listening to them preach, and I'm raking up Lee, uh, this grass, and I'm, I'm barefoot in my backyard, because it's nice and warm, and, and it was just an enjoyable day. I'm getting a little sun, right, I don't want, I don't want the flip-flop tan just yet, um, so getting a little sun on the feet. Whenever I pass the rake through a portion of the lawn and I see something moving. Now listen, I don't do snakes. I don't care how big they are or how small they are. A snake is a snake, right? A snake in the grass is a dead snake in my book, right? 
And so I saw that this little small ground rattler, he was just kind of rattling there along, uh, slithering there along the ground. I went into the garage, got a shovel, chopped his head off, threw him in the bag, and then immediately I went and put on shoes. <laughs> no more barefoot raking, right? Because that knowledge of the fact that there was this baby ground rattler there in my backyard produced vigilance in me to protect myself from things that could be bigger and badder than the baby. You know what I'm saying? Knowledge is intended to produce vigilance in our lives. And that's what John's aiming at here through giving us all this evidence to bring about an assurance for us that would produce vigilance in the way that we live. And in particular this morning, as we take a look at how this assurance brings about vigilance in our lives, I want us to see this big picture idea. There's, there's probably about five sermons in this text. I only get to preach one of them this morning. And so if, just, that's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? Um, you're like, I'm glad you're only doing one and not five because we would be here a long time. But here's, here's the one that I want to preach this morning is this. Because John highlights the connection between assurance and prayer. And he does it by showing us that our assurance is a catalyst for prayer in our lives. It's a catalyst for prayer in our lives. Do you know what a catalyst is? A catalyst, listen, you've got to follow me on this one, all right? A catalyst is something that brings about change, but is not changed in the process of the change that it brings about. Did you follow that? No. A catalyst is something that brings about change, but is not changed by the things that it brings, right? By the change that it brings, but there are several different kinds of catalysts in our experiences in life, right? There's chemical catalysts. A chemical, you didn't know you were getting a science lesson this morning, did you? A chemical catalyst, right, is a substance that speeds up chemical reactions, but itself is not consumed by the reaction. As a result, the catalyst can be recovered unchanged at the end of the reaction. It has been used to speed up or to catalyze. Right? It's a chemical substance that you introduce to two other substances that speeds up the reaction between those substances to bring about the intended result, but that substance that you introduced isn't changed by the two substances that it comes into contact with. That's a chemical catalyst. You also have personal catalysts, right? You might have events in your life or people in your life who bring about change. They catalyze something. They are not changed by the experience or the event or their interaction with you, but you are changed by your interaction with them. They become a catalyst in your life. But listen, there's also spiritual catalysts in our lives. And a spiritual catalyst, listen, is revelation from God that prompts action from us. It's a catalyst, right? God's revelation does not change. It stays, it's constant, it is steady, but it does bring about change in us. There are spiritual catalysts in our lives, a revelation from God that prompts action from us. And listen, in verse 13, John lays out the purpose statement of his letter in 1 John when he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John says, I want you to know that you are in Christ. I want you to know that you know God rightly. I want you to know that you know God truly. I want you to know that you know God, as we talked about at the beginning of the series, historically, as he's revealed himself. But I also want you to know that you know God personally because you've encountered him and have a relationship with him. John says, I want you to know that and be assured of that, those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God. 
And then on the heels of that, in verse 14, he rolls right into rejoicing in the reality of having confidence in our prayer life. He said, I want you to know God, and I want you to have confidence in prayer whenever you come before him. So when you put these two things together, it becomes clear that all this revelation of assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ becomes a catalyst for the action of praying with deep confidence that God would hear us. See, what John, you and I, listen, we have, having assurance of our salvation is not intended to produce passivity within us. It's intended to produce activity in our lives. See, being assured of God's love for us is not this this assurance that we experience on account of the evidence that we see in our lives is not intended to bring about passivity where we say, well, God loves me and I'm just gonna rest and I'm just not gonna, I'm just gonna rejoice and rest in God's love. And yes, we should. But you know what? That rejoicing and resting in God's love does? It prompts action. Not for us to be passive, but to be active in pursuing Him, in honoring Him, in walking with Him, in loving Him, and in serving Him. That we're not doing any of those things so that God would love us, but because God has shed His love abroad in our hearts, we are doing those things. That's what John intends, that there be an activity in our lives on the heels of our assurance, not passivity in our lives on the heels of our assurance. And listen, some of you heard me say this earlier in the series. Here's where this connects to prayer. The degree of your assurance will determine the depth of your prayer life. The degree to which you are assured of the fact that God loves you, that God, that you know Him, that you know Him personally and rightly and historically, will determine, determine the depth of your prayer life. How often you pray, how frequently you pray, the kinds of things you pray for, the kind of requests that you bring to Him. And so the rest of the time that we have this morning, what I want to do is hopefully show you the ways in which this assurance affects your prayer life from this text. I want to start with this. John says that if we know God rightly and truly, personally, historically, and have eternal life in Christ, that we will pray with confidence. That we will pray with confidence. In verses 14 and 15, John says that we pray with the confidence that God hears and responds to our prayers. See, if you do not believe, I want to say this as strongly as I can, if you do not believe that God hears you when you pray. Listen, you don't have a prayer problem, you have an assurance problem. If you don't believe that God delights to answer your prayers whenever you pray, you don't have a prayer problem, you have an assurance problem. I have an assurance problem. Right? That's the root of it. If we fail to believe that God hears and delights to answer. John says there's a connection between those two things. Right, that we ought to pray with confidence, the confidence that a child prays with, a confidence that a child makes petitions of their father with. Now listen, let's be clear. What John's not talking about here is he's not talking about this name it, claim it, blab it, grab it kind of prayer. That's not what he's talking about. Okay? What he is talking about, he sets some conditions on God hearing and granting these prayers. When he says the condition is that if we ask anything according to his will, according to his will, 
So listen, let me, let me see if I can illustrate it for you this way. The kind of prayer that John is holding out that's available and accessible to us as his, God's children, as those who are assured of his love for us, is this. It's less like ordering from Amazon and more like ordering off a menu. All right? You know, if you, if you jump onto Amazon right now on your smartphone or your device, right, you can order anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything, Right? You can order kitchen knives and hunting knives, right? You can order chicken stock and gun stocks, right? You can order all kinds of things off of Amazon. There's limitless possibilities. You can order whatever your heart desires. And if you're a Prime member, it will show up on your doorstep within two days. Right? With free shipping. Right? That's what it's like to order off Amazon. But whenever you walk into a restaurant... And they seat you at a table and you open the menu and you begin to peruse what's there on the menu, the specialties of the chef who's back there in the kitchen and the things that he's prepared for those who come to dining at his establishment for their culinary delights, right? You can order anything off of that menu. But what you can't order is something that's not on that menu. And the kind of prayer that John's holding, us, holding out here for us is not the kind of prayer that orders off Amazon anything that my heart wishes for, anything that my heart wants, but the kind of prayer that's ordering off of a menu that's according to the will of God. That's what he's saying, the kind of prayer that we have access to, that if we pray and ask anything according to his will. And listen, the place that you're going to find the will of the Lord most clearly revealed for you is in his word. Right? And so you, here's what you do. You learn to begin to pray the Word of God back to Him. Right? You take the things that we're commanded to do and you ask God, would you make those true about my life? Would you make those things real in my life, Lord? Right? Would, you, would, you, would you bring about change in my life that I cannot do on my own so that it conforms to Your Word? And, and you can know that if you're asking Praying God's word back to him, asking God to do things in your life that he reveals, that he commands for us to do in the scriptures, you can know that you're praying according to his will. And then you begin to make these big asks of God. God to do things in you and around you and through you that you can't do on your own. Right? For power that you need. You make big asks. As I said before, almost like, like a child coming to their parents. Listen, I've got two of those in my home right now. And I've got one in particular who is not afraid to ask for anything. And you laugh right now because many of you know who she is. <laughs> she is not afraid to ask for anything. Right? There is a confidence that she has in coming to us. Right? This, this childlike confidence of bringing her petition before her mother and father. Listen, I want you to know that God says you have that exact same kind of confidence because God has adopted you as His child. He's brought you into His family. He's made you sons and daughters. And listen, you are not, are not only, you're, you're, you're not my sons and daughters, but you're sons and daughters of a great, powerful, prestigious king. Listen, there's a picture of, of JFK um, back in the day in which he was president. Some of you have seen this picture before. I've used it before. But um, he was there in the Oval Office, and he's, he's there at his desk. He's doing some work, and you know, I don't know what he's doing, if he's trying to negotiate the Cuban Missile Crisis or what's going on in the background. But he's there reading papers, and you can see up underneath his desk there is one of his children. One of his children kind of peeping through the peephole there under the desk. 
And he's just hanging out there while his dad is up above doing work. You know who has access like that? A child. A child has access. And at the time, JFK was one of the most powerful men in all the world as the President of the United States. But listen, you are a child of someone who is much more powerful than any president, any pope, any king, any ruler, who is any prime minister, any queen who has ever ruled on the face of the earth. You are a child of the Most High God, a child of the King of all of creation. If you are in Christ, if you know Him rightly, truly, personally, and historically. And what that means is you have this kind of access. You can come up under the desk and you can bring your petitions before this King and you can believe with confidence that if you're asking according to His will, that He hears you and that He delights to grant an answer. Charles Spurgeon once wrote, he said, childlike confidence makes us pray as none else can. It makes a man pray for great things which he would have never asked for had he not learned this confidence and makes him pray for little things which a great many are afraid to ask for because they have not yet felt toward God the confidence of a child. Pray with confidence, church. Knowing that He hears you and that He delights to grant those things that you ask according to His will. Are you struggling in your marriage? Do you believe that God delights that if you would ask Him to bring a unified home for the sake of gospel witness in the world, that He would delight to answer that request and begin to do things in you and in your spouse that you cannot do in yourself? Are you struggling with your children? Do you believe that God delights for you to come before Him as His child and to ask Him to save and to sanctify your kids even in their rebellion as they run away? Do you believe that He he delights to answer that prayer? That he, He desires that none should perish but all should come to everlasting life. Do you, are you ask, what are you asking God according to His will? Do you spend more time in worry and anxiety about the things that are not going right in life? Or do you spend more time on your knees before God, petitioning Him in prayer, asking Him, asking Him, asking Him, God, would you make it so? Would you make it so? So pray with confidence. Second of all, pray for others. Pray for others. This is intercession. Bringing petitions before God on behalf of those who are around us. Look in verses 16 to 18. John turns his attention to praying for those around us. In particular, he says, those who are caught up in sin. And the reason I say caught up in sin is because in verse 16, I'm going to teach you something here for a moment, and so I'm going to try and break it down for you. In verse 16, the reference to committing sin and commits sin are both present active participles in the Greek text. You're like, awesome! What does that mean? Here's what that means. It means that what John's referring to is, a repeat, is repeated actions in the life of a person. Present tense, ongoing, continuous, repeated. 
those individuals who are caught up in sinful patterns and behaviors in their lives. And so when John envisions this, listen, he's not prohibiting us to praying for those who aren't caught up in sin, but he's instructing us to pray particularly for those who are ensnared by sin. Those who have patterns in their life that demonstrate that they're wandering, that they're, that they're, that they're, that they're wayward in their life. That something else is their treasure other than God and this relationship that He has given to them with Himself. Right? That we, that we pray for them. Particularly, He says, for those that do not lead to death. Now, listen. We're, we're, let's just go there, right? Let me, ask this, let me ask and answer these two questions. What is the sin that leads to death? And what is the, sin that de- the, the sins that don't lead to death? Right? Because we, many of us, we read that, we're like, what? I'm confused. I need some clarity. I'm going to try and give you, give you some clarity this morning, at least as far as where I land on this issue. What is the sin that leads to death? Right? It would seem that from the context of the book, what John is referring to is apostasy. Is apostasy. Now, what is apostasy? Apostasy is fully and finally abandoning faith in the true God and the eternal life that is found in His Son, Jesus Christ, in order to embrace a false notion of God or an idol. That is apostasy. Is fully and finally abandoning faith in the true God and His Son Jesus Christ in whom is eternal life to embrace a false notion of God, i.e. embracing an idol. Look, if you get to the end of, when you get to the end of John's little letter in verse 21, his final appeal to the people that he's writing to is, is little children. Keep, guard, protect yourselves from idols from false notions, false doctrines, false beliefs about who God is. That you would not give yourself to a false notion of Him. That you would not veer from this this, this profession or confession of faith, the apostolic witness that's been passed down about who Jesus is. That He's fully God and fully man. That you would not depart from the way of life that flows from the new birth. And the kind of virtues that are born in that kind of life. That you would not walk away from loving God and loving His people to embrace a false notion of God that would allow you to do, to, 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 to pull apart the soul and the body and say what matters is that my soul is captivated with God and will be, will be with Him forever. But I can, look, while I'm here, I can live it up. I can do whatever I want. Right? And so apostasy is fully and finally walking away or abandoning the faith. And listen, these were professing believers who abandoned their profession. They rejected the witnesses of the water and the blood and the spirit that Stanley talked about last week. And in so doing, they sinned in such a way as to lead to their eternal judgment. Their eternal judgment. These are the folks John was referring to back in chapter 2 when he wrote in verse 19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. So he's referring to these who had committed apostasy, abandoning their profession of faith. Now listen, this might trouble some of you thinking, well, can a true Christian, can somebody who's been born of God, would God remove his spirit? Would God take back his pledge of the inheritance, the down payment that he's made in their life? Would, can a true Christian lose their salvation? Listen, here's what I want to say to that. Listen, 
First of all, let me just be real clear. No, I do not believe that God does that. And here's why. Because not every person who makes a profession of faith has actual possession of true saving faith. Not every person who makes a profession of faith has possession of true saving faith. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a parable. It's a parable of the wheat and the weeds. Perhaps you've read it before. The wheat and the tares in your translation. And in that parable, there's a farmer who sows good seed in his field and his enemy comes and scatters weeds while he is, seeds of the weeds while he is sleeping and his workers are not there to be, aren't aware of what's going on. And so as, those, as the seed of the wheat and the weeds begin to sprout, the workers quickly realize that what's growing together in the field is not all good seed. And they come to the farmer and they say, listen, didn't you sow good seed? He says, yes, my enemy has come in and scattered weeds among the tares. And he says, well, do you want us to pluck it up? And he says, no, let it grow together until the harvest, at which time when the weeds are harvested, they will be bundled and burned, and at which time the wheat is harvested, they will be bundled and barned, right? Brought into the barn. Right, so there will be two different destinies for these people. These, these plants in the, in the story, which Jesus goes on later to explain, will be the people. Right? The, the sons of the evil one and the sons of the kingdom is what the reference that he uses in Matthew chapter 13. Right? And so not everyone, what the, what, part of what that means is not everybody who hangs out in church is a Christian. Not everyone who makes a profession of faith has possession of true saving faith. And so what John is saying here is they went out from us because they never really had possession of true saving faith to begin with. Not that a, not that a true Christian could lose their salvation, but they would persevere. And the reason they would persevere, listen, the reason I, we believe, I believe personally that a true Christian will persevere is because they have someone who is bigger than them and stronger than them that is protecting them and holding them in his hand. Listen, that's what he goes on to say in verse 18. He says, For those who have been born of God, they are protected and they persevere into the end because they have protection from the evil one. In 1 John 5.18 it says, We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. Now listen, this protection... Hear me, church, this protection that John's talking about is not an exemption from temptation in your life, nor is it an exemption from trials in your life. But this protection that John is speaking of, the verb cannot touch, the verb to touch here has a nuance in the Greek where it means can also mean to grasp or to hold on to. And so what, what, what John is saying is this: that those who have everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. In other words, they don't have this ongoing relationship with sin where they continue to binge on it. Right? But they, as it's brought forth in their life, there's repentance and faith. They trust what God has said is better than what they think. Or what God has promised is better than what they can experience on their own. So they don't continue in this life of sin. Not that they reach sinless perfection. It's not possible here. Because we all still wrestle with the flesh. And we're all still experience temptation and trials. But listen, what he's saying is that they don't continue to give their life over to this binging on sin. 
And he says the reason they don't because there's someone who's protecting them. And what he means by that is this, is that the, that the enemy can no longer hold on to you because somebody else has you in their hand. I don't know if that's good news for you, but it is for me. That somebody else is, who's stronger and more powerful is holding on to you so the enemy can no longer do so. Listen, let me see if I could break it down for you this way. If you or I were to become... Our, our, our parents, right, were to run for the office of the President of the United States. Some of you are like, I would not want that. <laughs> Hornet's nest. Particularly right now. But if you were to run for the President of the United States and you're, you were to be elected, hey listen, if you run, I'll vote for you, right? But if you were to run for President and then you were to be elected and you moved into the White House, And you sat in that Oval Office and you sat there at that desk and you were discussing matters of national security and foreign diplomacy with leaders from around the world. Everywhere that you went, you know who would accompany you? The Secret Service. Why? Because they are tasked with protecting you. But you know who else they're tasked with protecting? Your children. The children of the sitting president, everywhere they go, they have a secret service detail following them because one of the ways that the enemy would seek to do harm, the enemies of any national state would seek to do harm to any foreign diplomat is by getting to their family. And so their family has bodyguards, right? Protection that's put in place to keep the enemy from getting to them and destroying them. Listen, I want you to know as a child of the son or son or daughter of God, you've got a bodyguard. And his name is Jesus. He says, everyone who has been born of God, the one who was born of God. There's a subtle shift in our English translations. He's speaking of every Christian is protected by the very Son of God Himself. And that's good news. See, the reason you will persevere to the end is not because in your own strength you're strong enough to do it. But the reason you will persevere to the end is because Jesus will protect you and keep you if you've been born of Him. Man, that's good news. Should we continue in this little excursus? I think so. So Jesus has spoken elsewhere. Of elsewhere is the one who protects believers. I'm going to give you a few texts. In John 17, 12, in his high priestly prayer, Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Referring to Judas, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In Jude 24 and 25, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. And then in John 10, 28 and 29, Jesus says, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Listen, that is, that is good news. That those who are born of Him will persevere to the end because the very Son of God Himself will protect them. He will be their bodyguard. He will ward off the attacks of the enemy. 
Now listen, I know this is a long excursus, and if you're like, man, I'm not sure what an excursus is, because you're like the academic world, doesn't mean much to me. Listen, here's what it is. Very simply, it's a rabbit trail, okay? So there's been a long rabbit trail, but a good rabbit trail. So let's jump back into the text. So the sin that leads unto death, eternal separation from God, that's what John's referring to, is this apostasy, fully and finally abandoning the profession that you made and showing that it was never really a true possession of faith. What is the sin that does not lead to death? Everything else. Everything else. What's included in that? Everything else. What's included in that? Covetousness. What's included in that? Perversion. Sexual sin. What's included in that? Gossip. What's included in that? Malice. What's included in that? All the vices that Paul lists in his New Testament vice lists. Right? What's included in that? Everything else. And John says, whenever you see someone who is caught up in sin, what do you do? You go to God on their behalf. You pray for others. When you see someone whose life is shot through with covetousness, what do you pray for for them? You pray for contentment in their life. When you see someone whose life is shot through with perversion, with pornography, with sexual addiction, what do you pray for? You pray for purity in their life. That God would cleanse and renew and heal and restore. That they would take every thought captive in obedience to Jesus Christ and not allow their mind to wander down this rabbit hole of perversion and deception. When you see someone who is, their, their words are just riddled with gossip. Right? And every time you're around them, it's just like their tongue is dripping with little bits and morsels of information about people that you didn't go out looking for, but they're bringing to you. What do you pray for? You pray that their, their, their identity, their, that they would become secure in their identity before Christ so they don't have to have this identity before man as the person with all the goods on everybody. Where do I go to get the inside scoop? When you see someone caught in sin, John says, you pray for them. Do you? Do you come before God with confidence, asking Him, God, would you release them from this pattern that is destroying them? They can't even see it yet, but it's killing them slowly. It's destroying relationships in their life. It's it's eroding their sense of assurance and confidence in prayer. And we got to close. So pray with confidence. Pray for others. And then third, pray with awareness. With awareness. In verse 19... Listen to what John says. He says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John says, whenever you are born of God, there, 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 there arises within you a, a, a new, aware, new spiritual awareness. You become aware that there are basically two types of people. There are those who are born of God and there are those who are under the power of the evil one. You become aware that our battle is not against flesh and blood. How many of you, how many of you 
How many of us really believe that? That our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the powers and the principalities and the, the rulers in a dark realm. How many of us really believe that there are things such as demons and that there is a such thing as a devil who has power, who is the, the prince of the power of the air? Do we really believe those things? Or are they just mythology to us? John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And whenever you are born of God, you begin to pray with this new awareness. A new awareness that there is something outside this material realm that is affecting the way that, that, that life is conducted here physically. See, to be born of God doesn't mean you just get really religious. It doesn't mean that you have really, have really high moral values. It means that all of a sudden there's a, new, there's a new antenna, there's a new awareness that comes about in your life. And you begin to realize there are some things that you are not going to be able to strategize your way out of without prayer. Without prayer. And this awareness, listen, it leads you, this awareness of the spiritual battle that goes on around us, listen, it leads us to utilize prayer less, I borrow an illustration here from a pastor I've listened to over the years, John Piper. He says it leads you to, to see prayer not as a domestic intercom system, but as a wartime radio. A wartime radio. Right, you know what a domestic intercom system's used for? It's whenever you're sitting on the couch downstairs or up, upstairs in the media room and you hit the little intercom button because there's somebody downstairs that you want to bring more popcorn up to the media room. Right? My soda done ran dry, so you, you need to bring me some more. Right? That's what you use a domestic intercom system for. But a wartime radio is used to dispatch troops and reinforcements to the front lines in the battle. And listen, whenever you begin to pray with a new awareness that our, we don't wrestle just against flesh and blood, then you begin to use prayer less like a, a domestic intercom and more like a wartime radio. Because you're, you're petitioning God in the midst of the battle, in the midst of the fight against His enemy and yours. And listen, let me just say this. The way that Satan, the way that the enemy, the one who, 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 who has, a, has a kingdom and has authority and has power in this world, the way that he most frequently works in our lives, listen, it's not by demons jumping out of bushes in our front yard, okay? The way that he works most often is not by, by like, demons running across the road and, and causing car accidents, the way that the enemy works most often in our lives is not through the extraordinary way means, but through most ordinary means. And his ordinary means is deception. It's deception. It's to cause us to believe things that are not true about God and about ourselves. About who God is and about who we are. And so listen, if you're going to pray with a new spiritual awareness as one who has assurance of God's love for you, then you begin to pray that every thought in your life will be taken captive. You begin to pray for strongholds in your life, which are settled ideas that you cannot shake, but they are not true about God. They are not true about you, that those would be torn down. 
Right? There, there are some of us in here perhaps who have had the same strongholds in our life for years and years and years. And the reason they continue to be strongholds in our lives, the reason they continue to be these settled thoughts about who we are and about who God is, is because we've never gone to war against them in prayer. Asking God to tear them down. Do you pray with that kind of awareness, church? Or do you just push the intercom button? Listen, John says, all of this knowledge, all of this information is not intended to make you passive, but it's to make you active. It's to make you to make you vigilant. And so as you look back over the, over the book of 1 John, and you, my, man, my hope is that by God's grace, that He has brought to mind those rhythms and patterns in your life where you see right belief, that you believe in the historical God as He revealed Himself in Jesus Christ. That you hold firm the true doctrine, but you also see a love for God's people and for the church. And you see... Not perfection, but patterns of behavior in your life that are changing to walk in obedience to Him, yielding to the Holy Spirit's work in your life. And as a result, that you are assured, because you have this evidence, now you have this assurance that you are one who has been born of God, that you have one who fights battles for you to protect you and defend you, and that you would fall on your knees. And assurance would be a catalyst for prayer. And you would pray with confidence. And you would pray for others around you when they were caught in sin. And you would pray with an awareness that what they are battling against and what you are battling against is not just flesh and blood. And so you would say, God, do what only you can do. So as we bring this series to a close, it's kind of fitting, right? Tonight at 5 p.m., we're going to be back in this room and we're going to sing and we're going to pray. And listen, if, if, you've, if, if, if you've got young kids, we, we're, we're not, we don't have child care tonight. If you've got young kids, here's what, here's, here's what I would say. It's okay if they run around in the back and make a little bit of noise. Okay? And if one of you need to step out and take care of them for a moment, do that. Step out and take care of them. And then, and then trade off. And some of you experience one portion of the, of the prayer service. Some of you experience the other portion of the prayer service. But listen, there is, come pray with us. We're going to pray through the prayer circle that we handed out earlier. The prayer concentric circles that we handed out earlier this year. If you want a copy of that, I think we still have some there back at the back counter. We're going to start pray, by praying for ourselves and then by our, for our friends and our family and those in our life group, then for our church and community, then for our mission partners. And we're going to sing and we're going to pray. Come join us. Come join us as we go before God and we begin, we, we begin for some of us begin, for others of us continue this wartime effort of seeing God's kingdom unfolding, His rule and reign advancing in our lives and around us. So I hope you can be here. I want to pray for us as we close. And then the, Brian and the banner can come and lead us as we rejoice in the fact that we have one who protects and defends us. 
Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to sing, to declare your greatness and majesty and worth. We thank you that indeed Christ, your Son, is ours forevermore. For those who are in Him, no one can snatch them from Him because you are stronger than the evil one. He who is within us, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ that is within us, is greater than he who is in the world. He's more powerful. And Father, we just rejoice in that truth. And may that, the the evidence that leads to our assurance, may it also produce a vigilance and that we be a people of prayer who have confidence to come before you as a child who know that there is nothing, if we are born of you, nothing that can take us away from you. And that we would fight the battle of faith on our knees in prayer and petition before you. We pray it in Jesus' name.